Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. We started this podcast a few years ago to help improve knowledge around SEND. Yes, there is lots of stuff to read, but we're all really busy. The phrase, every teacher is a teacher of SEND, is currently an ideal, not a reality. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same information to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest and that I've invited on to talk about a specific area. And this week, my guest is Tessa Morton. Tessa has come to talk about autism and anxiety and how to help children and young people with autism to self-regulate. Tessa is the passionate mum of an autistic boy and is one of the founders of Act for Autism. Before we get started, I would like to remind you about B Squared. Over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. Our assessment content is used in over 10,000 schools around the world, with around 1,500 using Connecting Steps, our assessment software. Our evidence system, Eversense, helps schools capture and share the achievements their pupils are making, and our online CPD offering training for education started two years ago with the virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. If you would like to find out more about B Squared and how we can help your school, go to our website www.bsquared.co.uk. There is lots of information available and you can book an online meeting to find out how we can support you. Or you can drop me an email. My email address is dale at bsquared.co.uk. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing how your classroom might be terrifying to an autistic person and how to help them understand what is happening in their body and help them gain self-control and self-awareness. Joining me today is Tessa Morton, one of the founders of Act for Autism. Um, And Tessa is also a passionate parent of a son with autism. Um, Before founding Act for Autism, Tessa had spent over 15 years supporting autistic kids in her community through drama workshops. And Tessa is also a trained counsellor and has been supporting parents of autistic kids, helping them to manage their emotions and anxieties. Welcome to the show, Tessa. Hi, nice to see you. Why might a classroom terrify someone with autism? Let's start there. Well, what's interesting, first of all, you might not know that they're terrified. What you might witness is a child that's really aggressive, defiant and disruptive or a child that's very passive and not engaging. But what we've learned, because we've been really fortunate to work with so many young kids recently and in the past projects, they start to share what the school experience is like for them. And because an autistic child has difficulty sensing um, regulating their senses and all sorts of, you know, the senses are more than just the five senses, being in a school where often it's chaotic, often the pressure is quite high, often it's inconsistent, is unbearable for somebody who needs consistency, who needs order and needs a calm space to learn. So a child won't actually say, I'm terrified, but they'll display behaviours that are called challenging behaviours, but they're becoming so scared, not just because the classroom in itself is overwhelming and the expectations are really unmanageable, they're scared of the reaction they're going to have And then the responses that they get based on the reaction. So, for instance, a child who's aggressive and defiant will be punished or put on a behavior program or their friends will laugh at them or not want to play with them. And then the child that retreats is forced to come out, to engage, go play. Let's put you on a social table. So what happens is they have this reaction to being in a place that doesn't feel safe. And then the reaction doesn't lead to them getting what they need, which is understanding, time, a supportive environment. And what we've witnessed is when you give the child what they need, when you make the accommodations, which are difficult to sleuth, we know, you'll start to get a child that's going to thrive in an educational setting. But when you're trying to sort of tell them off about the behaviour or push them through that behaviour, going, you mustn't do that, you've got to do this, it just doesn't work and actually increases the pressure, which then unfortunately turns into the term school refuser because the child actually votes with their feet and says, not I won't go, I can't go. So imagine that, you know, you're on a high diving platform and everyone's going, jump, 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 jump. And you're terrified of diving, but you know it's okay because other people do it. And everyone's going, come on. And then someone says, you've got two minutes to jump or we're going to put somebody else on. Chances are you might go, I'm not doing it. Now, it's not that you don't want to do it. You really want to do it, but your body literally won't let you propel yourself off the diving board. Some of the children I speak to who've been out of school for months and years 
are desperate to go back to school. They say, my body won't let me, which is really interesting as a concept. But also, sometimes when you're on that high diving board, it's, you might not want to, and then someone pushes you <laughs> off anyway. Yeah. And you're not even ready, no. which means you're never... That was probably the most terrifying thing. I wasn't ready. You pushed me off. You're probably going to hit that water in a very painful way. Yeah, good metaphor. You're never then going to do that ever well, again. the school of thought is, well, if you do it, you'll love it. And then, you, you know, like I imagine, uh, you know, when I've got um, my autistic son and a, a daughter who's not autistic and with my daughter, when she didn't want to go to nursery, said, leave her here. I promise you she'll be fine. And she was. The crying stopped. She got engaged in the activity. And that was a typical way of encouraging her in by pushing her off the diving board, so to speak. My son, we tried the same thing. What happened was he learned not to trust me or the nursery because we'd go, it will be fine. And he says it was never fine because he wasn't able to get the feedback my daughter got from those interpersonal skills, relationships. And also he wasn't able to regulate himself because his sensory system was completely different to the children that were around him. And he wasn't given the adjustments. We presume that your sensory system is maturing with age so that what a toddler might find difficult to cope with, you know, heat, light, self-soothing, hunger, they will instinctively grow out of that and they'll self-regulate. What we're noticing with autistic kids, and I'm not an OT, I'm not a sensory specialist, I work with what I see, is that their sensory system will often be dysregulated all through their life, but they learn to manage it. And therefore they can completely engage in what we might call normal society, but they are mindful of what's going to trigger them off. They are mindful of strategies, but that takes quite a mature mind. So, so it's not a really delay. It's not like it will come three years later. It no. might never come. Well, it won't come if you put pressure on, but what comes is education and self-awareness. So yeah. of course we've got to educate our children in the curriculum because we want them to go on and be fully functioning members of society, employable, etc. But actually, I see the bigger education piece, teaching our children about emotions and how to regulate. And I know we do that with children now. There's a much, you know, all schools now do emotional awareness and, you know, uh, they do courses on you know, how to understand yourself and your body and mental health. But with our autistic kids, it's got to go on and be continued because it takes a little bit longer for them to learn that lesson. And in moments of stress, they'll forget everything. A bit like me. I'm not a very good cook and someone can give me a recipe and I'm fine. And the minute I'm in the stress of cooking it for people, I forget and I'll leave a major thing out. What is that? It's not a problem. I can go to Marks and Spencer's and buy the meal. But you know what? If I'm in a stressful situation and I'm a young adult and I forget how to regulate myself, the consequences can be quite long term. You know, I'll either embarrass myself or I'll shame myself because of my behavior or other people will reject me or at worst, I will get punished for it. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, policemen who witness somebody having an emotional regulation that shows physical and they get locked up for that when really they weren't managing their emotional outbursts. At school, children getting punished for when they're just trying to let you know they're having a really hard time, but they're showing it in their body. And it's important when we think of this anxiety and self-regulation is um, social stories a great way of helping children understand what to do in situations. My nephew would, uh, what do you do when you're lost? go find a policeman. And my nephew will go through and answer everything. He'll get it spot on perfect. You'll give him every emoji card and say, how is this person feeling? Happy, how's that person feeling? How is that? You put him in a real life context, his anxiety will go through the roof. He has no idea how he's feeling. He will never be, he can't read that person's feeling. He hasn't got a connection with that Because it doesn't look like the officer. picture in the emoji, does it? So he will never ever ask that person. He will shut down. And if he is lost and you get shut down and that purse, it's not. So you've got to make and help that person self-regulate. And well, you've got to do the lessons, keep doing the lessons. But as Peter Vermoulin, who's a phenomenal advocate for this, he talks about you have to teach our kids social skills in context. So again, our drama workshops are brilliant for that because we actually act out, you know, someone being stressed and getting lost. We actually act out social situations where they can go, oh, I didn't do it how it said in the book. And we said, no, because sometimes it doesn't work how it says in the book. Peter Vermoulin talks about, you can't look at an angry face on a piece of paper because actually an angry face on a piece of paper could look like me when I'm puzzled. Yeah. For instance, if I shout upstairs to the children, it's supper time, come on. I'm not angry. I'm excited to get them down to eat my lovely meal. But it's not so lovely because you know I can't cook. But it sounds the same as if I'm going, what have you done that for? So when I'm shouting to come down for supper, that sounds... So again, our children, we absolutely know this about autism and, and the why is all about the neurology. But the, what we see is that they don't 
read situations like we do, and we don't always get them right. They don't witness expressions like we do because there's a nuance. There's a nuance. We can see the bigger picture. We can say, look, Dale has got a strange look on his face right now, but I'm talking to him. He's probably curious about what I'm saying. But if I saw Dale's face on a piece of paper, it looks quite sinister. Dale looks like he's about to rob me. I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't see this, but he's doing a very strange face right now. My point is, I can see Dale in context. When I arrived at the studio today, I was quite agitated. I couldn't find a car park space. I was hot and bothered. Dale could see that in context. He said, do you want a cup of water? Brilliant. But not in context. I could look like a crazed woman and he might stand well back from me. So we... We have to allow our children to explore things in context. So keeping them away from social dynamics, although it protects them, is not brilliant. We do need to encourage them, but we need to hold their hand metaphorically. We need to unpick situations. We need to social stories or picture plans, same things, to unpick situations and explore them with them. But then put the caveat that, and it might not always be like this. I encourage all the children I work with to be detectives and to gather information about every situation they're in. They bring it back to our work groups and we go, what happened there? Why do you think that happened? We don't come up with the answer straight away, but we're building a lexicon of emotional understanding, which will take years. But the good news is you're doing that alongside a natural maturity and natural curiosity. And the bigger, bigger piece here is that they are safe to explore and nothing is wrong. So nobody comes back with a suggestion and we go, oh, that was stupid or that. It's all about, that's really interesting. That's fascinating. Now, if you look at the school context, sadly, it's a lot about right or wrong. And unfortunately, your peers will be doing a lot about right or wrong. You get the joke wrong. You do a social, you know, it's okay to be giggling in, the, in, in the, the, the playground about something, but then you carry on giggling about it in the classroom. Most children know not to do that. If you're autistic, you might not know, and then you get told off. And nobody explains to you that it's okay for the playground. It's not okay for assembly. What you can do in assembly might be different to what you do in the library. You sit on the floor cross-legged in assembly. You don't sit on the floor cross-legged in the library. How am I supposed to know that? Just because everybody else does. So school actually is a fantastic place to teach the kids about inconsistency, but it's going to take longer. They're not going to learn the rules as innately as all the others by modeling and watching and making those deductions that we all do with every cognitive process. We go, ah, that happens here. Notice it doesn't happen here. Therefore, I won't do it there there, there again. That's a cognitive processing, which is quite sophisticated. But I think schools can be disabling because they don't do that. Or they could be really enabling because it'd be the place where you could actually guide that child through a mini version of society, which is chaotic and competitive. And there are wrongs and there are rights. But they need to be able to be in the learning environment of that and often with our children in education, we expect them to have learned that by year, whatever. You know, you need to learn where your coat goes. Yes. The fact that I'm 12 and I don't know where my coat goes could be punishable. No, it's not for an autistic child. They will have forgotten where their coat goes. They'll have forgotten where the pee room is. They'll have forgotten what they're supposed to bring for lunch, even though they've been having lunch at school for the last seven years. So, and it's interesting, what you think they're worrying about and what they could be worrying about are often very different. So my daughter has a bit of anxiety. And I'm trying to help her out, you know, gentle, you know, talk to someone in a real simple thing where you know, I've already ordered dinner. All you've just got to do is come in, say your name. It's already paid for and collect it. And I said, what are you worrying about? And I'm literally going, what, they can't? She went, what happens if I fall over? You only really get rid of anxiety if you're that kind of person that you know, um, catastrophizes and visualizes what might happen if it goes wrong, which is a safety mechanism once you have the evidence stacked up enough. Now, we presume that with neurotypical children, the evidence is once or twice. I went into the dinner hall. I had my lunch money. I gave it to the dinner lady. She smiled. I got my lunch. Oh, that's how it works. With an autistic individual, you don't know how long it's going to take for that evidence to stack up. And it takes one outlying event for them to knock them straight back to, you told me it was going to be okay, and it wasn't. And they have to almost recalibrate. Okay, I thought I knew how to navigate through the lunch hall, but sometimes I have to make sure that that doesn't happen as well. Okay, let me recalibrate. And sometimes they almost need to go slightly wrong to experience well, what happened. We so. need to learn. Exactly. So we can't shield them completely. But when it goes wrong, we need to be there very quickly to help them understand and unpick. But the challenge with all that I'm saying is it sounds like a lot of work and a lot of communication. We don't start at communication. We believe that if you try and change the child's behavior, you're going in at the wrong end. You've got to try and look at what is causing this behavior struggle. It's because they don't feel connected. They don't feel safe. 
So if you can start to understand how does this child need to feel safe? What do they need? What do they need to build connections, better connections with me, their teacher, their TA, their Senko, their peer groups? What do those connections look like? It's like for some people, connection is having 16 people gathered around you in the playground laughing at your jokes. For some people, connection is playing sport together. For my son, connection was sitting with one friend reading a book about dinosaurs. That was his way of connecting. Didn't need anything else. But of course, they thought he needed more friends to sit and read the dinosaur book. No, no, no. One friend was enough. Now, he still has small groups. He doesn't want large groups. My daughter loves a large group. Who am I to say what the right way to socialize is? But we presume that all our young people will love running around a playground with 65 other children trying to find a ball. Not my son and not many autistic kids. It's not how they want to socialize. But they do like to socialize and they do like to learn. But the environments need to be sleuthed. What I'm saying is we as a teacher, as a Senko, need to be more of a sleuth because our children don't really know how to articulate what they need, especially when they're young. So I was just going on the journey of discovery together. So, you know, the what works, what doesn't work question is really good. So what works about this? What do you like? What don't you like? Right, let's see if we can map out more environments that look like that. I think it's not a big change. It's not like this is what your classroom currently looks like. This is what it needs to look like. The answer is we don't know what it needs to look like because you need to find out from that child what it looks like. But the main, the big change is, which isn't actually big, is don't assume. Listen, it sounds really hard, but... My daughter has anxiety and, and that time we, she burst into tears about it. And I'm literally going, but I've cut to me, I was going, oh, but I've made this so easy. And, and I, just, I just listened to her and I was literally going, and I literally said to her, I said, I can't understand how could to me, I just do this. So I, another time we went somewhere, you know, he say, someone says to you, have a nice day. And you say, you too. Yeah, you say it to everything. So someone said, you just go, so, you too, don't you? And we were in a pub. And someone put her meal on the table and they went, have a nice meal. And my daughter went, you too. And then kind of died on the inside. And I was like, what happened? She went, nothing. I went, I don't know. I, I literally went explained to her, I went, I've done this so many times. You kind of just go, oh, what an idiot. But it goes to a very deep place of feeling rejected and not connected to start with. But I'm going to give you there's a, the best response you can say to a child when they say, and I'm anxious about this and I'm anxious about that and I'm anxious about that. Our instinct as a teacher parent is to fix and fuss. Let me fix it for you. Let me let, you know what you should say? I hear you. Yeah. And I hear you full stop because you know what? That child just needs to know that they have been heard, validated, and it's okay to be anxious because we try and fix it. We go, anxiety is obviously not good. I'm going to stop it for you. But also she's going, dad's done everything and it's still not worked. So I'm not going to tell dad because he looks so disappointed that he can't fix it for me. So you know what? I'm not going to tell there comes a whole other agenda then. So we say to teachers, save yourself all that energy on trying to fix it. Of course, behind the scenes, we should be sleuthing and trying to clear the pathways. But in the presence of the child, until they're at that place where you're actually working on the cognitive understanding of how to unpick problems, which probably isn't when they're having the problem, by the way, because when they're having the problem, they're expressing their anxiety from a deep place. You say, I hear you. That sounds really hard. Practice it for me, Dale. I did, practice it for me. It's what I said, it's like, <laughs> I said I, I don't know how. I, I no, you don't, didn't. You said, I don't know. That's I said, what I hear you. I said, I don't know how to support you. I got a whole sentence. It's a whole sentence. No. Like, I don't know how to support you because I've not experienced this. Too much, too much information. But this is, but we then picked the conversation up a couple of days later when me and her went for a drive. And I said, right, so thinking back, what was it? Okay, and I literally said, so if I ask you to do that, how would that make you feel? She was terrified. I was like, okay. Is it better if I tell you a week in advance this is going to happen? She went, no, because I worry about it for an entire week. So is it better if I just bring it on you? She went, well, kind of, but no. So I'm literally, I'm trying to sort of from trying to work out where she sits. And how you're she a works. dad and you've got that luxury of am, sitting in the car, haven't and you? And I'm such a logical brain that in my head ever saying, you do this once, it works. The I feel like, uh, sorry, the I hear you, honestly. Uh, try it. Don't even. People go, yeah, I did that. I said, no, you didn't. You've given me a whole other sentence. I hear you. It must be hard. Is the plus first up. Then what we try and do with our young people, and this is something that you can do in school with any child, you try and build up a kind of uh, a list of feelings that people have. So with an autistic child, you might say, so these are some of the feelings. Um, some people have angry feelings, and those angry feelings, they might start in your tummy, or they might feel hot in your face. And when you're angry, it's normally because you feel somebody's done something that's not very nice to you. 
and I'm, I'm rushing us here, but that might be anger. Then we might go to happy. When you're happy, it feels like there's butterflies in your stomach. And you can, they can say, oh, yeah, I feel that. So you do a lot of talking about feelings. So you have a list of feelings. And then you have a list of needs. So when you're angry, what do you think people need? Now, if we go, I don't know. Okay. Well, when I'm angry, I need a cuddle. No, I wouldn't need that. They say, when I'm angry, I need to sit by myself. Oh, yeah. that. So you start to help them have this list of feelings and needs. And what they then can do is say, I'm anxious. Potentially, they've learned anxiety. I need you to listen. I'm anxious. I need someone to sort it out. So you have, and it becomes almost like a very quick fire route to, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I need, which is actually all you want as a parent to know. Because what you're doing, you're sleuthing. Tell me what it is. Tell me what it is. And all that noise when they're anxious could be overwhelming. What teachers do? What's the problem? Are you lost? What do you need right now? You look really anxious. Why were you fighting him? What's going on? For an autistic child, really useful questions, but they're not hearing them. Those are questions that maybe you do a couple of weeks later, side by side. I notice that you seem to be getting upset with Paul quite a lot. Can you tell me about it? What do you think Paul's doing? So that's what, not, tell me what's happening. And we know that with children now, but with autistic people, times it by 10. But if you can create this feelings and needs chart, not as a generalized one, but for that child specifically. So I have it as I, you know, I see, I'm fortunate I see children in, in individualized settings. So we'll have a board, a dry white board. And over the course of working together, we've got a list of feelings and a list of needs that we've worked together. We've had fun. We've laughed about them. You know, I feel dizzy. I need to lie down. I feel um, cross. I need to stamp my feet. You know, so they'll come in and I'll say, how are you feeling today? And they'll go, point at one thing. What do you need? Point at the other. No talking. I'm very clear where they are. They've expressed their needs. And I can either give it to them or I can say, well, I can't do that now because you're not at home. We haven't got your dog to cuddle. Would you like to cuddle my dog? Yes. So we've dealt with the basics <laughs> and we can get on. And it's a beautiful connection piece because actually, who are the people we are most connected to? The people who we understand, who understand us, who we feel safe to express ourselves and who meet our needs. Yeah. yeah. Whether they're very superficial needs, like my mate I go football with and he always gets the ticket, or my partner who literally will stroke my brow when I'm tired. And that's what our children miss because they haven't been able to tell us that. We haven't been able to meet that need. Two people frustrated in that relationship. Yeah. And we're expecting them to, come on, tell me what you need. Tell me what you need. That's like saying to me, speak to me in Japanese. I don't know the language. I haven't got a clue what the language is. And even if I've been to like lessons on Japanese under pressure, I've forgotten it all. So does that, does that make sense? It, and if a teacher can do that, I know it's on top of the curriculum, but you've then leaped ahead in terms of relationship. But also if, if one thing, it sounds like a big thing and I haven't got time for that, but it's, if you put a little bit of effort in at the beginning, you're not going to have the meltdowns. You're not going to have these difficulties. You're or if you not, do, they're much quicker they're much to repair. Smaller. Yeah, they're not so damaging to everybody's kind of uh, self-esteem and, and, and disruptive around them. Or you might not be able to provide it, but if you put this effort in and it's still going badly, you've at least got information, you can go somewhere rather than this is coming out of nowhere. I don't know what this happened. Is you're literally going, we've done this, 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 but this hasn't worked. I kind of know from my feeling this is what's causing it. And you might be able to solve it. So, but it'll give you so much information for then getting an extra support. Because also what happens is often in school, autism doesn't become a problem until the child's a problem. So for me, if I'm coming, if I'm a, if I'm a teacher and I see that there's a child with an autism uh, diagnosis, I should be doing this work before the problem, the problem. So I should be talking to the parents about what works, what doesn't work, what's worked before. I should be talking to the teachers and saying, right, we need to put some accommodations in. So who's got this child for this lesson? That's a really good one to be doing this in. Are you in biology? Right. So if you're doing biology, we need to be doing some extra work maybe around sensory system and regulation because that's a really good one to do it in. Oh, you've got English. Why don't we choose some stories that are around anger and, and, and we can start to feed in some emotional understanding into our lessons, but also be talking to the parents because they'll know whether the child has a diagnosis or not. They'll know that their child has certain challenges when it comes to behaving appropriately at school. And we can start to look at how we can help them not behave appropriately, but feel better connected so that if the behavior comes, it's fine because it's the fear of the behavior getting them rejected. And a lot of the kids have told me this, which is why they sit on it for so long, sit on it, sit on it. And then you get the explosion. My daughter was very, very paranoid when she started secondary school about getting a detention. Yeah. And she got a detention and she was petrified. Mum, don't tell dad, don't tell dad. 
she's petrified. I'm literally going, am I? I'm, I'm, You're the ogre. I'm going, but how am I the ogre? How, what have I done? And it might be that I'm not an ogre, but everyone says, oh, my dad is an ogre. My dad. So she thinks I'm going to be an ogre. I don't know. I, I, I swear I haven't come across as an ogre. I've really made sure I try. And, but she told me, and I was like, yeah. But it, it was her, that fear was there for her. And it was, it was a real thing that I can't understand. I can't see me from her perspective. Mm. I can't see how all those different little things that have happened between her over the years have made her feel at different situations. I cannot understand any of that. So and also, I... you're an evidence-based person, so you're looking at the evidence as an adult and going, well, this is the likelihood of it not happening. What's the evidence of it not happening? What are my strategies to cope with if it does happen? So you know what? I can exist in this space. That takes a lot of emotional cognitive processing, which autistic kids, they, they don't have to the same level as other kids. They will get them, but they don't have it. And I just think that teachers often think that we're moving our children on and therefore we can keep galloping on and that's great. And for neurotypical children, that's definitely the momentum of a neurotypical pathway. And I really applaud it and it's fantastic and it works brilliantly for kids, the momentum of the learning and the, the social kind of modelling. With autistic kids, it is not going to work. Short term it might do, but it's not. So you might get them through your year doing that. What works is quality connection, really having a trusted, safe place, but also thinking about how the space is overwhelming. You know, think about the typical classroom. Chaos, noise. We put the, you know, the, the bunting up. We put the, got the hamster in the corner. And parents, uh, teachers say, well, I can't take them out of the classroom. I said, okay, so what we suggest is you create a corner. You create a corner where you've actually taken quite a lot of things off the wall. There's a chair that can turn to the corner and there's some books of choice or a thing of choice. And that child can just go and sit in the corner Nobody minds. And it's not sit in the corner, you know. Not a punishment. No. It's a choice. And let's not make it a corner because corner has obviously some sort of kind of connotation. But a space, and we say clear the wall and let the child create. It doesn't have to be bigger than two pieces of A4, things that they like looking at that they've created. Sometimes that is enough. And, of course, they say, well, I have to do that for every child. I said, no, we don't. If a child needs a ramp, not everybody uses the ramp at school, just the child that needs the ramp uses the school. And if we've got autism awareness running in the school everyone understand that it's just a different way of thinking you don't you don't ask every child wearing glasses to take their glasses off as they come into school and also child might need to wear headphones as well now i do think that you can't expect younger children to accept that unless they've had some understanding around how the brain works but if it's a classroom where children are accepting that child will exist in that classroom better as well. And I think going forward now, we're in a culture where we do need to be much more open about difference, which is fantastic. So it's not a difficult subject to teach. And the autism behaviours, in inverted commas, will not be so expressively disabling to the child and the class if autism is accepted in the class. So think about deregulation. Before the child has even had an opportunity to kind of rise to the boil, you've created a platform that is safe, accepting, inclusive and that's useful for everybody and that child will be a phenomenal contributor to the class if you give it space but it's some you know physical adjustments like you know spaces in the classroom because obviously you can't let a young child leave the classroom it's adjusting your perspective on what their autism presents yeah. like so just how you had a child last year who's autistic this child might not be the same yeah. sleuthing as much from the parents but then using our 3c pathway model as a way of connecting you and that child having this connection where it might just be a wink or a thumbs up where you check in with each other quite regularly. You being as calm as you can. And, you know, I love teachers and I love, you know, I used to do some teaching myself and this was my voice. Good morning, everybody. It's, oh, it's fantastic. How are you? Oh, lovely to see. That's great for a child who needs energizing and wants to feel connected through that energy. For an autistic child, it's another headache, that noise. They can't hear anything. It's hard work as well, I think, putting that voice on. Yeah. So actually, what about a nice heartbeat rhythm? We use heartbeat rhythms a lot. We did some work with a classroom teacher recently who had a child that was running around the class a lot, causing quite a lot of anxiety. And I said, why don't you talk in a heartbeat rhythm? She said, what do you mean? And I said, okay, what's a heartbeat rhythm? We just tap it out. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And you talk like that. Okay, class, we're all going to calm down now. And it's... And it's quite mesmerised. I can see Dale's looking across at me. He's gone into kind of a, a, a mesmerised state. And it feels very kind of disjointed and not authentic. And you will change it to your own rhythm. But we say talk in parcels of information, talk in a heartbeat rhythm, talk low and slow, and talk less. 
Yes. Because very tempted to go, okay, class, we're all going. And I get it. There are times when you have to kind of corral the class. Another thing we've used in one of our workshops, we, autistic kids and, and, and all together, and, you know, it's a lot of noise, a lot of energy, quite a lot of high anxiety. We introduce the tambourine. Okay. And we tap the tambourine in a heartbeat rhythm. You know, you can imagine. Boom, 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 boom. And we say, this is going to be the rhythm. How do we feel about the rhythm? And nobody objects to that rhythm. We start by going around the circle. You say, hello, my name is Tess. Pass it to the next person. They beat it out. Hello, my name is Paula. We go around. Some people don't want to do it. It's fine. So they get used to this rhythm. And then I say, right, every time we're having our breaks, I'm not going to call you back. That's far too noisy. I'm going to beat the tambourine. And when you hear that, just come back and sit in the circle. Well, Pied Piper of Hamlin, <laughs> literally. Because you want to go, guys, come back in. You've had your cut. Doesn't work for many children. Definitely doesn't work for autistic kids. But I think, how do I corral them? You know, they're all sitting in their groups. They're talking. That Some of them have gone off and done their reading. Some of them are doing their own thing. We tap the heartbeat on the tambourine. And you see, they all start to kind of convene. And then they come back onto the mat. And it's really calm. So we were giving that to a classroom. And she said, well, I just don't know whether I can use it. It's ridiculous. You know, she tried. She said, it's literally like a mastery. She says she's like this conductor and she's bringing all the instruments in together, using it all the time. Started to use it in assembly as well to get everyone to be quiet. The heartbeat rhythm on a tambourine. It's amazing. I do find it. My, my daughter, you, you, you just pick a clap, clap a rhythm. Yes. And it's great because what I like about it is you can hear it, but it's not that... It's not intrusive. It's not intrusive into my head. So if I'm finishing that sentence off, I'm just, or I'm processing that thought, I want to, or I'm just finishing what I'm saying, I can say it and then I can go and do it. Or I might finish and go, yeah, I'm off. But it gives me a little bit of a time allowance for me to get up and go. Well, if you think it's tribal, the bass rhythm is very tribal. It's the call of the tribe, isn't it? But actually more than that, when was a baby its most calm? Probably in the womb. And what was the soundscape? Ba-boom, ba-boom. So it could just be, oh, it's a nice gentle reminder of when I was a baby. Probably not. I think it's much more deep-rooted in our neurology. It's a safe place we revert back to. So again, this the autistic child in the classroom, chaotic, their heartbeat's rising. So you've got the rhythm of a heartbeat that's slower than theirs, which is calming, but will also bring their heartbeat down. Because actually... Anxiety starts from an internal reaction, isn't it? It's the um, polyvagal system firing off in all sorts yes. of different directions. Dr. Stephen Porges' work, which is fantastic. We've got this kind of amazing system which kind of energizes us, but also it can, be, the it can be tripped very, very quickly. But if you can do something externally to bring the heartbeat down, so heartbeat rhythms, we do tapping on the arm. We might tap on the side of a table, tapping on the side of their leg, or just clapping it out. But also we get the children to put their hands on their hearts. And, tap. and even if they can feel their heartbeat going faster, we say, can you notice your heartbeat's faster? And they go, if you do your heartbeat tapping and you slow, what happens to your heartbeat? And they go, oh, it's got slower. And again, if a child can understand that their heartbeat rhythm is in their control, that's very empowering, isn't it? It is. So you touched on something earlier, which I want to come back to because I don't you know, interrupt you. And you talked about when you have that um, situation in the classroom with that child's having that meltdown or a situation, how you perceive that as a teacher, how the head teacher perceives that and all that lot, you're thinking of safety, other children. Um, how does that fit in with our behaviour code? Are we allowing that to happen? What the children are percept their perception of that incident is going to be completely different. So my daughter did have a boy in his class who occasionally they evacuated the classroom. I said, "Oh, so what happened?" "Oh, it just happens." That was it. In year three, it was yeah, it happens. That was it. It's just it's the way that person is, and she was really accepting of it. I'm literally going, "But you're outside the classroom, and it was an outdoor classroom. So you get cold. Was it raining?" and that's my worry. And she was like, he sometimes, he sometimes needs it. Yeah. And you're like, so I was like, wow. So if I'd said that out loud to her, then I've given her things to worry about. But she's just taken what has happened, put it into context of what happened to her and how she felt about it. I was like, yeah. yeah. Whereas I'm going, oh, we can't do this. What about this? What about this? What about that? 
But that's your adult mind. That's you. Well, I think it's also it. an old school thinking as well. You know what I mean? Where we all had to behave and sit in rows, and anybody that didn't was disruptive, and they were the naughty child. And why would we have to accommodate them? They have to accommodate us. You know, so we didn't understand. You know, we just thought this. And also, it was quite. If people had emotional outbursts, we just presumed they were coming to us for attack, as well. And we now see that actually, if you go in, yes, you might get your hand bitten by the dog if you put the hand in the cage. But actually, if you just stand well back. There'll be some self-regulation going on. And then we just need to manage that child going forward and help them understand there's no shame in it. And there are ways that we can help them. And there are ways that they can help themselves. But I think for an older generation, it was there were no emotions. There still aren't any emotions. You're not allowed to discuss things. No. We're very conservative. Really now is the conversation I have with my wonderful. daughters are, oh, I wish I had this with my parents. Oh. Obviously, when I think about my parents, I really would not have, I cannot imagine having that conversation with my parents. But it is, you sit there and you have these conversations and I feel I feel blessed and that my daughters are happy to have these conversations with me. Yeah. So I've got no expectations. If they want to tell me stuff, that's amazing. I try and put make a, them feel like they can share stuff with me that I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to listen. I might then tell them, you think that was a silly thing to do? <laughs> you should have seen me. I sit there and go that I'm not perfect as well. That's the other thing is that my children know I'm not perfect. But I think also when, made a, mistakes. when a child has a meltdown, we need to tell them that we have meltdowns. Ours just look a bit better or different. Yeah. I mean, when I say better, I mean, we manage them differently so we don't get ourselves into trouble after the meltdown. Because unfortunately, because of the way society is, if you're just making a lot of external noise, people don't like it. So whose fault it is? Society It's not your fault. So you're reframing the whole experience. Having said that, we do want to help our children not get to that place where they have to do that explosion because they don't feel good about it. However, if they need to explode, they need to explode. And it can look very differently. You know, for, for my son, it would be lots of moaning and, and stimming. He wouldn't be thrashing out because he's more of a introvert in his emotions, if that makes sense. But if you've got a very physical child, naturally, they probably will flash thrash out which will look like they're actually attacking somebody it's not it's just the way they're kind of getting their energy out of their body so we need to help our children understand there are other ways to do that but if they do need to do that it's safe and you will be there and you will protect them and that's why it's great that your daughter's school has an understanding of it the chances are that child will not melt down so much but there's always going to be triggers throughout the day so if you think about the natural day of a school child, the, first of all, the sensory input they've got to contend with, the inconsistencies, the, our children are very literal. They like things to be regulated and ordered. And so school can often say it's going to be regulated and ordered because that's the plan. But, you know, a fire alarm or a visiting teacher or a sick child or COVID completely throws everything. And that can really destabilize a child that was probably doing very, very well. And then everyone goes, oh, we've done all these interventions and they've still got this problem. No, it was just that was the straw that broke the camel's back that day. So we unpack it, we put it back in, and we go, moving on. And I keep saying to teachers if they feel that there's some regressive behavior, I say, we've been here before, haven't we? It's not regressive, just something's going on. And it can be something so hard to sleuth. It could be something that happened a few weeks ago that's now coming into their body as trauma. It can be the wrong jumper. It can be mum said they're going to have something for tea and you've got the same meal at school so you don't know whether you should have the meal twice. And I'm in the fortunate position that the kids tell me this and the amount of things that go on in their tiny little brains that can cause some disconsolation is so overwhelming for me. I mean, God, I couldn't deal with that in my adult brain. And they're dealing with all these concerns and worries. And I suppose we can... We, we focus on concerns and worries if we're trying to avoid being concerned and worried because we don't want them to come in. So our children are living in a constant trauma. But as an adult, you've got so much control. So if you're the person cooking dinner and you go somewhere and they serve you, oh, I was going to cook that for dinner. I'll do that tomorrow. Or oh, I'll throw that in the bin. Or you can make a decision and solve the problem. Or you just go, well, I'll eat it twice. I like it anyway. The child has so little control. So if they're having... Well, explode. And they don't know the consequences <laughs> of their action. Um, so our children, people say that our children, the autistic kids that I work with and my son, aren't empathetic. They don't have any feelings. Often, oh, they don't have any feelings, so it doesn't matter. Or they don't have feelings and that's psychopathic. Our children feel at such a level, at such a level that they have to shut down, otherwise they get overwhelmed. So 
the feeling part of our children is sponge. They will feel everything. My son used to say he was Bluetooth to me. So I'd go, I'm fine. He'd go, you're not. Because <laughs> he could feel there was other stuff going on underneath. My anxiety about him used to exacerbate his anxiety about himself. Um, he senses other people's integrity and authenticity. And a lot of our children would say that. And when you're 21, you can choose. I don't want to be around you because I think you're false or I don't trust you. When you're seven and someone's, the teacher is saying, right, we're going to go to PE at 12 and suddenly it's quarter past 12. I don't trust you. You said PE at 12. You, know, you can lose trust so easily, but you can't voice that. You can't say, I don't trust well, that teacher. You also have to learn it. You've got to learn that when this teacher is actually, they just wanted to, something else happened or another teacher was already in that room so we couldn't go in there. When that child's just making things up, it's just, you say, oh, why, why? but she said it was like, she said her mum was a dinosaur or she said her mum broke her leg or she, he said her dad did this or her dad's a foot, his dad's a foot. you literally going, you believe it. And then you go, well, why would they say that? And to the point you're going, I really don't care. I'm not going to be with them. But you get that and older, you get that experience, um, which takes a long way. So talking about your son being a sponge. And yeah. Because re- when people say they've, pe- people with all may not have it, they might not express it. It doesn't look how it looks in you and me. So yeah. they, they can probably also read they, them. Since they can read well, they can, they can read something, but they can't always interpret it. So yeah. they're reading lots. So you and I can read, interpret, and then react. So they're reading lots. It becomes overwhelming. They respond inappropriately. What's the point? I'm getting it wrong. So very early on, the only reason you're going to notice autism is because someone's getting stuff wrong. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You're not going to go, oh my God, I've got this amazing child. They must be autistic. You go, there's lots of things going wrong with my child. I need to go for assessment. Autism. So you're already coming in deficit. My child is wrong. That child is hearing they are wrong more than they're ever hearing they are right. Well, what would that do to anybody's self-esteem? So I start to learn that I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, how brave am I going to be? No, I'm going to stay closed. My emotional expression is obviously part of the fact that I'm always feeling wrong. So I'm feeling overwhelmed and disconnected and self-loathing and all the things my children tell me about. But also I'm not going to talk about my feelings because people tell me they're wrong. Or I'm not going to express a feeling. I hope my son doesn't mind me saying this, but we there was a funeral in the family a few years back. And I said, do you, do you want to go to the funeral, giving him the option? He said, no. I thought it was because there would be too much emotion. He said, I don't know what face to pull. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, some people are crying, some people are laughing, and I just don't know what the rules are at a funeral. So, of course, he's going to have a feeling, but he doesn't know what the rules are because he just presumed everyone would be sad. But some people don't cry at funerals and some people wail. So, it's just, does that make sense? He doesn't understand. He doesn't why. want to stand out. He doesn't want to get it wrong. So you know, it's, it's easier or... not to go. Also, our children will feel emotions possibly differently. So they might feel pain differently. They might feel happiness differently. You know, I, 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 t- I imagine you and I feel happiness sort of the same. But what if you just felt, what if happiness was in your fingers? What if happiness was a, a zinging in your head? What was, I feel it in my tummy and I feel it in my heart. So if you're feeling it differently and then you express it differently, you're going to look at everybody else going, I better shut down on these feelings because I'm just not doing this right. And I'm simplifying this a lot. But can you understand that it's not about not feeling? It's about my feeling doesn't feel like other people's and look like other people's. And when I do it, I get it wrong. So you know what? I'm just going to close down. And of course, the less we express ourselves, the less people express back to us. So we're not learning through the modeling. We don't trust ourselves. And is it, you're thinking about it soon. So, what do when we see fireworks, everyone? How do we feel? And everyone's saying happy, Exciting. fun, great. And this child's going, okay, this okay. isn't right. Why are you all happy? It's terrifying. And they will immediately feel different and go, what's wrong with you, lot? <laughs> and I don't trust any of you now because you're all feeling about this wrong. You don't see the danger. I mean, that's at a basic level. I mean, I work with quite a few autistics who might say, I actually don't have any understanding of your feelings. I mean, it's not like I don't understand them. I, 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 not like I'm, I'm, it's not my son, I say I'm confused. Whereas I've spoken to other people, say, I don't understand it at all. And I'm not even going to bother because I've got so many, I've got so many other things I have to learn right now. Now, what's interesting is quite a lot of the people I work with who've now gone into adulthood might start to study psychology. They might start to study linguistics. They might start to study people because they suddenly realize it's really interesting to learn that because that would be useful for me. And often they become experts in their field in that area because they study it to such a degree from a scientific analytical point of view, whereas you and I study people from a psychological point of view, not an analytical. So it becomes an academic interest for a lot of our young people because they realize that they were missing that basic understanding to start with. I mean, it's fascinating because I've worked with children who you would look at and think they have no feeling here. 
And then when you get to know them, the feelings are so abundant and are so conflicting. It's just like a, like I say, if I had to deal with that in my emotional, intelligent brain of nearly a 60 year old woman, I would find it very exhausting. I, I sometimes I sit there and go, I almost haven't got time for the feelings. I've got so much to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and I'll kind of get on with something, kind of maybe put, bury things. Well, we know where to come, to go, but we know where to compartmentalize. Yeah. That's, that's another skill, isn't it? Whereas and what if you don't know where to compartmentalize? What if you haven't got that filing system all the stuff? That's the yeah, thing. So, so you can do it's that. It's like crashing around all over the place. And sometimes it's, and it's just, you sit there and you, you know, when you're, when you work's really hard and you're really concentrating and then your daughter spills a drink over the new carpet and you kind of explode at your daughter. And you're just, you don't, at the moment, you, you don't regret it. You're just sitting there. And you're, it was absolutely justified, doesn't it? Pretty justified. Then after a while, you sit there, you, get, you come back and you work. And you're like, I can't work now. I'm so angry. And your day's ruined. It's her fault. And then you realise after a while, it had nothing to do with her. She knocked a drink over. Everything else was me in that situation. Now, some people might get to that straight away. Some people like you will take a few hours. Some people don't get to that place because <laughs> and, and because they've moved on to something else. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't take them back to that place and help them understand it. But I think a lot of our children, they're living in the moment because if you're living in the moment, that's how you survive. And so I went back and I talked, I went late that evening. I went and talked to my daughter and apologized and said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, sometimes work's really difficult and I've got to do this and it's really, and I was just right in the middle of something when that happened. And so I kind of apologized and explained why. And, that, and she said, and I, and I, sometimes she said, have heard, I've explained that, you know, when you shouted at me for something, like, it's just sometimes we try and, I said, I try and divert the anger to where I'm angry. I really, if I'm angry with work, I'll angry. I try not to be angry with you, but I can't always be that controlling with my emotions. Sometimes they spill out and go anywhere. But that's what we need to teach our children, that as an adult, we are pretty rubbish too. You know, because yes. again, as a child, you're seeing everybody else succeeding and not. So in school, you've got everybody else succeeding academically, everybody else succeeding socially, everybody exceeding, uh, succeeding emotionally, and you're constantly being told that you're not and you need to catch up. Well, even for a neurotypical child, that would be exhausting and, 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 and damage their self-esteem. So again, a lot of the work that Jane and I do is talking to teachers about you're not dealing with an autism issue. Okay, autism is in here. But you're dealing with a child who comes to you at 7, 9, 12, 15, who is very fragile in their self-esteem, has got very strong protective behaviours, and is literally on high alert the whole time. And if you know that, you've got to get in there in an autism-friendly way, which is connect, calm, and communicate. Because again, neurotypically, you might be able to rush somebody through that. Like, let's give you the school counsellor, or let's put you in a social skills group. Or if you just join the netball team, that'll get her connected. You know, we do things, and it can work. You, could, you know, somebody's feeling disconnected at school, you get them in the band, and suddenly they've got their whole social circle. It's not going to happen for the autistic child because there's so much collateral damage and also there's the autism perspective that will always be slightly different when it comes to the four areas of difference communication processing um sensory and social it's it's going to be different and i keep saying to parents it's not going to go away but it's going to look different and it's going to be impacted with some really fundamental self-awareness and regulation skills, which are going to empower your child, but it's got to start at school. For some children, it's they haven't had the opportunity to be in the network with it, but and giving them that this is how you get into it helps them. The door's open. But when that door's closed and they literally have no idea how to open the door or even what to do when they go through that door, well, that's they the thing. don't have the skills or even there is a door. <laughs> Well, I remember my son again, he, he, he wanted to join the chess club. And so they said, well, we keep, we've got, we found him a space. So he just has to come along to room B on a Thursday. He hasn't turned up. He hasn't, of course he's not going to turn up. He's got to get from there to room B. That's like going across the Grand Canyon as far as he's concerned. Well, should we send him a mentor? We'll send him some, one of the older boys. No, not, not just any old, older boy. We need a trusted friend who's going to coach him in. And then when he's there, make him feel safe. And it's a very tender process that probably only a parent knows how to do, but you find those special teachers and it's absolute magic. It's getting to the room. Being in the room. What's going to happen when I go in? Exactly. What, what am I supposed to, what is expected of me? And what if I want to leave? Will you all be disappointed in me because you've made such an effort to get me in the room? 
You know, yeah. you've given me a special place now. And it, oh, are you going to allow me to come and go as I please? So our workshops and our the work we do with young people, they sign up, but they never have to come. <laughs> of course they come. They sign up and if the parents pay, they get their money back if the children don't come. Because again, that's another thing. The parents go, oh, I've booked 10 sessions. You have to go to football. It's like, well, maybe on a Thursday, they're not feeling up for it. What's interesting is we get full admission because they can choose not to come. And if they come, they can choose to sit in the corner and do whatever they want to do. There's no pressure. A school can't be like that. Or can it? I re- primary school can be a lot like that because you generally have that same person every day they can go to. So you come in and you know that child, they'll come in one day and you're going, I can sense something here, yeah. Okay, we'll have an easy day today. In secondary school, I think it's that is a lot harder. Well, the biggest thing the children tell us, there's a film on our website, kids talking about what it's like being in school. Time out, massive. You need to create a stress, a system for time out, but they need to feel connected with you and the place they're going to go to. So don't just kind of go, well, if you need to go, there's a room on the fourth floor, just let me know. That's not going to work. They need to trust you. They need to know where the space is. Space they need to needs go to, to the space. They need to go and try it out. They need to know that when they go there, there's no going to be BDIs on the stairs as they go up there. They're not going to be interrupted. No one's going to say, can you leave the room now? I'm using it. Okay. So that's brilliant. We've talked about having a space in the classroom, which is less cluttered. Our kids talk about time for processing. Yeah. However clever I might appear or adept at this subject, I need time for processing, whether it be processing that something's changed, you know, breaks now going to be here, not there, or a piece of homework. I might need longer to do things. So don't give me deadlines along with everybody else. Allow me to have more space and I'll probably do it for you. And another thing that worked for quite a few children, and again, it really depends on the school, is that when they were having a hard time in the lesson, they took their work, they went somewhere else, and they just did their work somewhere else, and they got it done much quicker rather than having to stay in the classroom. But again, it's trusting that the child will do that. It's trusting they're not going to run off. And, you know, what if they truant? I, you know, of course, we have to put all the safeguarding in place. But what's interesting is I've seen results because I've worked through the whole school system with some of the kids. When they're allowed to, to learn autonomously, I'm working with a young lad at the moment who was in a mental health unit a few years ago, not in school, super bright. He's now, because of the lockdown, done all his education at home, loved it. He's applying to med school. I mean, his mother, you know, obviously he had it in him, but there was no, that was not his pathway a few years ago. And something around lockdown has enabled him to be at home with his computer and learn how he wants to learn. Thankfully, he got there while he was in the education system. But can you imagine if he'd not been given that accommodation and he's now 20, 22, 24, what would he feel about his academic prowess? I don't have any. Because he needs those markers. We need those educational markers, GCSEs, A-levels, which I think is changing a bit now with vocational study. But And our children are told, if you don't have a degree or if you don't have a qualification, you won't get a job. And then they're told, well, you're not coping in school. So I won't get a job? So... School is a phenomenal place for our children to learn about life. It's a microcosm of life. So let's do that learning before we push them down the curriculum. And let's do it alongside the curriculum. And the way an autistic person approaches life will probably be a little bit different throughout their life. But it doesn't mean to say it's wrong. No. Um, and one bit I just want to add to all those bits on the processing and how it takes work and not setting deadlines is make sure they understand what is being asked of them. Yeah. Because you might say to someone, design a pencil case, explain why you did it, why you designed it that way. If you ask that person, design a pencil case, well, I don't know. Well, look at pencil case you've already got. I'll draw the pencil case I've already got. Why did you design it that way? Because you told me to. I don't know. Because he said so. Yeah, that would be the answer. And they'll go, but I expected you to tell me all the... No, if you're being a bit vague or um, uh, ambiguous... You need to make sure they understand what's I've got a lovely example of that. There was a lad I was working with and we were just talking about why school was hard. He said, they ask stupid questions. They'd give me an example. He said, well, we did this whole project on the school history and then we were asked to choose which part of history we'd like to have been at the school, you know, whether it be, it was a very old school. And he said, how do I know I wasn't there? How would I know if I'd liked it? So he'd put, I don't know. (laughs) I completely agree. You know, and it was a 400 word essay. So it was like, you know, you know, and I get it. We have to have kind of you know, generalized questions. But if someone's got a better way of answering the question or somebody needs more clarity, go, brilliant. You're such a literal, lateral thinker. I need to think about how I ask you that question better next time. You need to help me educate you. It takes time. 
It takes patience. We've lost some of our resources in school, which is really concerning. We've lost some of our specialism in school as well. So we've got wonderful TAs who don't have any autism specialism working one-to-one with kids who get frustrated because the practices that they would work with with a neurotypical child who might need a bit of extra time is different. Um, It's not complicated. We do training. We can offer training to all schools. We can do it on Zoom now, which is fantastic. But we just try and help them understand a few of the adjustments that will accelerate the relationship. And once the relationship is embedded, the child will tell you what the best pathway is for their learning. And they'll be more confident in taking bigger steps. Asking for help. Also, they become more tolerant in accepting, actually. You know, I talk about the pace that we have to speak and processing. The kids will work with me now and they go, Tash, you're talking too fast. So they tell me or, oh, you're a bit chaotic today because I am quite a fast talker. But we have the relationship where I can not have to do heartbeat rhythms all the time. But if we need it to bring the energy down or they'll tell me, Miss, you need to tap your heartbeat. You're too stressed, which is joyful because we're having a relationship about energy, about feelings. And we get it that sometimes we'll be brilliant together and sometimes we won't be brilliant together. But we have that trust. And it's not if it's not brilliant, it's not you, it's not them. It's just where we are today. It's what was in the sky that morning. It was uh, they ran out of... uh, Cheerios this morning. I mean, the autism perspective on the world is absolutely glorious and can teach us a thing or two about being in the present, being, you know, in our imagination, about being creative, but also literal, which is so contradictory, aren't they? This creative brain with a literal brain. Um, But, you know, it gets me out of my thinking quite a lot of the time and makes me realise there's a whole other world out there, which is fascinating. It is. It is fascinating. When you look at a problem one way, then the person next to you gives you a completely different answer. You just kind of go, what, what? And school should be a playground for children to be able to do that rather than, no, this is the way you think about this problem. They're presuming they have no thinking to start with. And I think autistic kids seem to have a way of thinking that we're not unlocking. We're imposing our way of thinking on them. And the defiant ones are going, excuse me, you're not asking me. But you can't say that to a teacher when you're seven. No. My son used to say, I think I know more than that teacher. And I go, don't say that. Don't say that. No, don't. I've been there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Was that you, Dale? I was. My my whole family, as it says, a certain trait. And uh, if you say something wrong, it's something that we know about. My, my sister couldn't help but, you know, just putting your hand up. Yeah. Miss, miss. But I can't, unfortunately, appears as arrogant. No one goes, that's brilliant. Thank you for that. What we're going to do is we're going to explore that later on. That's brilliant. We really appreciate that. We've got to do this now, but can I come and explore that with you later? No, it'd be nice if they came at me in that way. But it was, uh, excuse me, no more. Thank you. Put no, your hand down. You're wrong. I'm right. Yeah, exactly. I'm the teacher. You're the pupil. Yes. Oh, and was, is red rag to ball to me? <laughs> and me. And Which is probably why we're in this work. I bought in a rather big book and showed her that she was wrong. Oh, <gasps> it, Part of me is, this is the truth. You told my entire class the wrong. How can I trust you going forward? So I had to point out she was wrong. <laughs> and then, and then, and then in your 12, school report... Dale has a countenance of arrogance. We need to bash this out oh, of him. Yes, I got to This get, will not serve him well as an adult. I did get called arrogant by my math teacher, who yeah. was the scariest one in the school. I went, that's nice. What does that mean? <laughs> I wish she didn't like either. So, uh, yeah, I but I didn't know how to come across. I didn't know how I was supposed to be because um, I thought I was supposed to learn from all these amazing I people. Know. And if one of them said, Is he, oh, okay, oh, apparently. But no, they didn't. They just said, you're just so it's just certain ways teachers can be because the problem is you are a role model to every person in that it is a really hard job of course it is it is a really there's no hard way job. i'm trying to teach a bash what i'm trying to do is give teachers a pathway to make connections with autistic and children in their classroom everything is about making that being a human you might have made a mistake you might not have known something that you can learn from them the more humble you can be as a teacher the I would say the easier your life will be because you're going to make better connections with all those people. And I also think that the autistic class, uh, the autistic child in your classroom, often you think that's my responsibility to get them sorted before next year or sorted before. They're on their journey. If you can just lean into their autism and embrace their autism and learn from their autism, you're just making them a more full autistic person, you know. And, you know, if they're fully embraced in their autism, it's a tiny part of who they are. But if they're fully embraced in it, it doesn't need to be looked at. It just is. If it becomes a problem, we need to look at it. If you can learn about their autism, help them be more confident so that next teacher, rather than spending six months learning about them, they can actually maybe explain to that teacher, this is how I work then that's going to get better each year. Well, the joy of the children I'm working with who are now young adults, they're going to university and they're sitting in tribunals talking about what they need. They're sitting in disability meetings talking about what they need. And that's what we should be doing, advocating and then allowing them to self-advocate. 
Excellent. Thank you, Tessa, for that was today. That's a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And Tessa's again, once again, has provided me some useful links um, around her courses and book. And also, I'll be sharing uh, Tessa's contact details, and all of that will be in the show notes. And you'll find the show notes wherever you found the podcast, but you'll also find them on our website, www.thesendcast.com. So a big thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. Um, and please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. Uh, and please use social media to share with others what, how great and amazing and what you think of The Sendcast. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out what we do here at B-Squared. As well as this amazing podcast with all our amazing guests, we have our online CPD platform, Training for Education. You'll find a number of guests like Tessa here have been speakers at one of our virtual Send conferences, or they might have recorded their own training course. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD to all staff around SEND, not just the SENCO, that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And lastly, don't forget to check out our assessment products. This is what B-Squared is known for, helping schools show the small sets of progress pupils with SEND make. We cover a huge range from early years to post-16 and preparing for adulthood, and we also have a tool for profiling autism. Visit www.bsquared.co.uk for more information. So thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.